Well, good morning, everyone. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I pray uh, this morning as we kind of wrap up a couple passages here in John that we've spent in the last couple weeks. Lord, I pray that we're in awe of who you are and your grace for us. May the message of grace be present and clear this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. And well, last week we started... Uh, two weeks in the book of John, we talked about John 1. I want to encourage you to go back to last week's sermon. You can find it on the archives on YouTube and go check it out. And today I'm going to be digging mostly in John 14 through 16. But what I want to do is I want to kind of set up a case before getting there, uh, just to kind of build some foundation and get us to kind of wrestle a little bit. And today I'm actually going to preach on what I believe is one of the biggest misconceptions in the Christian faith, and it's very common. You may be watching and you think to yourself, oh, what is this misconception? Do I maybe believe this? Am I maybe living out of this belief? Well, let me ask you this question. If I were to ask you, what is the Christian life all about? How would you answer that? Just take a minute and think about that. I honestly believe if I were to poll different people in the living rooms or live around the room, there might be different answers, actually. Think about, think about that. What is the Christian life all about? There was a researcher by the name of Kara Powell who partnered about 10 years ago with Fuller Theological Seminary to do some research. And what they targeted was, they targeted about 500 some kids that were 18 to 25 and they were raised in church. And they wanted to see, okay, some of them that have left faith and are no longer engaged in faith in the context of the church, They wanted to see what some of the similarities and some of the trends were with them. And then for those who remained engaged with faith and were attending church and heavily involved, they wanted to see what some of the trends there were. And so there was a survey that was done. You could check it out, a book called Sticky Faith by Kara Powell. And she asks the question of these 500-some 18 to 25-year-olds. She asks, what is the Christian life all about? And they were shocked by the answers. Actually, the majority of the answer was doing good, not sinning, and behaving well. And what was actually fascinating was that a quarter, a fourth of their answers didn't even include Jesus in their answer. And you may hear that and you may think, oh man, that's, that's just one research project. They can't be true. Well, let me tell you about the Barna Group. The Barna Group is also a researcher and an organization that, that does different polls, both in culture, current culture, and within the church to kind of help the church think through outreach. And a couple of years ago, they wrote a book, um, and it was called Unchristian. You can go check it out. It's Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman. David Kinnaman's the president now of the Barna Group. And they asked this question again, what is the Christian life all about? And the most common answer was this, lifestyle, doing the right thing, being good, and not sinning. It was actually over and above discipleship, evangelism, community, and worship. So let me ask you this today. 
Is God's intention for saving us and rescuing us, is his whole intention just to leave us to figure out obedience and leave us to figure out behavior and not sinning and almost in a way that feels like we're on our own doing it? Well, I believe that also in Christian circles, sometimes the way we communicate the Christian life and things like sanctification or the process of becoming more like Christ, sometimes, just like we saw with Kara Powell, sometimes we do it in a way that is void of the work and the power of God in our lives. It's almost like we're left to just fix our own behavior and with a stress that one day we're going to be judged by it. And I believe what this does is this actually perpetuates and puts pressure on people to almost clean up their lives, to to almost clean up their sins. And it's almost like God's kind of at a distance watching and they're continually in fear that God is angry and frustrated with continual struggles as he watches from a distance as people attempt in their own might to fix their lives. And the reality is, is some Christian communities that kind of perpetuate this thought are places of really high control and really high control of behavior. And what this does is this continues to perpetuate judgmentalism because it's the sense of self-righteousness. If that's the idea, then what I do is I judge somebody who struggles with things that I don't struggle with or no longer struggle with in that environment. And then hypocrisy, because it's the stress that we have to put our best image forward for people. But what happens is sometimes in these situations, we feel the stress of being unwilling to admit that we have struggles. And in areas of our lives, we're actually helpless within our struggles. The reality is, is the only hope that we have is not within ourselves, within our own willpower. The only hope that we have is a power outside of ourselves. The only hope that we have is an intervention with the power of God himself. I want to tell you about my friend Phil. I grew up in Colorado Springs, and in high school, my senior year of high school, in 2002, Guitar Center came to Colorado Springs. It was a huge deal for those of us who love playing music. There was a guy by the name of Phil who ran the drum department. And so he knew me well, and uh, one of my best friends he knew well. So he knew when we walked in, he would have prepared bricks of Vader Power 5A drumsticks. And he would give us great deals. He would mark them down, or he'd give us you know, uh, we buy whole bricks. And so he'd give us like, buy one, get one free. Totally gave us a deal on them. Well, let me tell you about Phil. Phil was one of these people that if he had a drink of alcohol, it wouldn't end there. There was no stop sign for him. Now think about this. In our lives, whether it's drinking, whether it's our thought life about ourselves or other people or other situations, whether it's continual behaviors, All of us struggle somewhere with stop signs. We just can't stop ourselves. And so Phil, he would start drinking and he wouldn't stop himself. There was no moderation. He'd be on the floor out of control by the end of the day. And so uh, this messed with his relationships. He had a son. And so at a certain point, he moved back to San Jose where his Mom would help him raise his son. 
And after his eighth DUI, the court forced him to a recovery program. So at the recovery program, he went to AA. He was searching for a power outside of himself because he was powerless to fix it himself. And he walked into the doors at the Journey Church that at the time met at Santa Teresa High School in South San Jose and then moved to Pioneer High School in South San Jose. Well, that was in 2002, 2003 that I knew Phil. Well, in 2009, my family and I, we moved to San Jose, California. And I remember I I took a position as a worship leader at this church, the Journey Church. And here comes walking Phil in through the doors, cross, he's wearing a cross, totally in love with God. And I'm like, what in the world? And so I hear his whole story of what God has done as he sought a power outside of himself because he realized that he was powerless. And Phil and I, we still keep in contact. As a matter of fact, every day on the Bible app, me and him are doing the same devotional and we're part of a discussion group. And I'm so thankful for what God, what God has done in Phil's life in ways that he could not have done for himself. Now, I'm not gonna share fully this, but the reality is because of my story, I wanna make a bold statement here for us to sit in. I believe actually it needs to land and maybe sit on a couple people today. And it's this. I believe that recovery groups actually look more like how community deals with struggles than some Christian communities. And here's why. In a recovery group, you actually celebrate a person's openness about their failures. And in a recovery group, people know that they're not going to see change until they're open about it. And first, they admit that they're powerless against their addictions, their compulsive behaviors, and that their lives have become unmanageable. Second, they become uh, under this belief that there's a power greater than themselves that could restore them to sanity. And third, they make the decision then to turn over their lives to the will and care of God. This is actually how the Bible talks about repentance. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. It's that we turn over to God to do what we can't do for ourselves. I want to say this. From some of the things that God has brought me through, some of the people that I know with the deepest faith are people who have walked through or maybe now even continually walking through struggles of destructive habits. I think about the verse, Hebrews 11 verse one says that faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the reality of things not seen. I see these people that are just struggling and fighting that there's evidence of hope in them. Sometimes it means that their knees are worn out from going to the Lord, knowing that they are helpless. I believe that some of these people I've seen have a deeper faith than even some of the people who moralistically and religiously just seem to have it all together. I want to bring you into something that Paul said. In Romans 7, Paul lays out and he he says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and the things I know I should do, I don't do. Doesn't that sound kind of like this? We're powerless, we don't have the stop signs. He says, what a wretched man am I? Who can save me? And then the very next verse, he says this, thanks be to God 
who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The very next verse, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think somebody needs to hear that this morning. From the age 12 to 25, I was a very angry person. And this level of anger, I, even though I, mean, I was raised in a Christian home, I tried to just say, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be angry. I'm going to will myself to not be angry. And I had anger outbursts around the home, around other situations. We could be at a restaurant. I blow up at somebody. It wasn't until I came face to face with some of my brokenness at age 25 that I surrendered my life in many of the ways of my brokenness to God. It wasn't by me willpowering myself to just be better and do better and not be angry. It was through walking side by side with Jesus that two years later, I remember looking back and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am a totally different person. I want to bring you into a conversation that Paul has where he actually lays out his moralistic resume. It's in Philippians 3. I love how it actually starts. It says this in verse 4. It says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. So he's saying, I'm the man. I religiously have it put together. He lays it out from the tribe of Benjamin, says that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is crazy how he ends that paragraph. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, flawless, which meant that he's one of those guys, if we were to look at him today and look at his behavior and look at his religiosity, we'd be like, man, that's something to strive for. He's such a godly man. I love in verse seven what he says. He says this, but whatever were gains to me, talking about his religious, moralistic resume, he says, I consider them a loss for the sake of Christ. He continues on in verse 8. He actually says that he considers them garbage. Think about this. His moralistic, religious resume of all the things that are like his spiritual merit badges of how awesome he is religiously, he says, I consider them garbage. The Greek word there is skupulon, which is actually a four-letter word, a Greek equivalent of a four-letter word that I'm not gonna say here. So he's saying that he considers all these religious acts, he considers them manure, he says, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, from God on the basis of faith. Before we dig into John, I just want us to understand here, Christianity isn't about behavior modification. It isn't about us in our own might cleaning up our behavior. It's about a life of walking with Christ who is our righteousness. Now, when we dig into John here, I want us to really understand this crazy union that we have with Jesus who becomes those things, righteousness and hope for us. 
We're going to dig into John here. We're going to start in John 14 and go through 16. But what I want you to understand is that John 13 through 17 is actually what we consider here John's account of the last meal, the last supper. They're all up in the upper room before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. We talk about being united with Christ, that our righteousness is found in him. What John 14 does is it actually starts with a marriage metaphor. John 14 verse 2 says this. It says that in my father's house are many rooms or mansions or dwelling places or places to live or sleep, however you want to say it. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again that I may receive you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. What this is, this is a marriage covenant metaphor. If you want to look more into this, you could go to the Thursday before Good Friday of this past year in our archives and kind of understand a marriage covenant. But basically, a marriage covenant was made between a husband and a wife and the families. And what the husband would do, the bride is his, yes, but the husband would go to his father's land, build his house on the father's land, come back for the bride and take her. This is a marriage metaphor. This tells us that our union is with Christ. This tells us that we are the Father's children. This tells us that we are heirs to the Father's kingdom. This tells us that we're just not walking around now as individuals by ourselves to figure things out. But no, those who have union with Christ are found in him. On the last day when judgment comes, when God's like, hey, what do you have to say for ourselves? We just point to Jesus. We're found in his righteousness. Back to 14, chapter 14 of John. He says this, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, real quickly, we hear this commands. We're going to see it again, this call, keep my commands, keep my commands. If we're not careful, we can think because we see that a couple times in these passages that it's really all about keeping God's commands. So let me ask you this. What are these commands? Now, I'm not going to get into that now. I'm going to define that later. But think about this. Is it talking about all the commands in the Bible? Like from Genesis through Revelation, all the commands given to the Israelites? Is it talking about the Ten Commandments? We'll come back to that. But what this is, this is a promise of the Holy Spirit to actually be the helper, to be the advocate in this command. Pastor Derek's going to talk about this in the next coming weeks. This, how is the Holy Spirit a helper? How is he an advocate? What do we see from this? And I believe that it's gonna be very helpful for us to understand the work and power of God in our lives coming out of this. So this is a promise of the Holy Spirit. I love 
how Paul sometimes even talks about the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For me, I feel like I need to like push all of my bad habits out and then there'll be freedom. The reality is this freedom doesn't come from me pushing those things out. Freedom comes from me inviting the presence of the Lord. Freedom is the presence of the Lord in our lives. I want to get to the next chapter, chapter 15, and these beautiful statements that maybe you've heard. It says, As I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it will even be more fruitful. We think about fruitfulness. I want to talk about fruitfulness here. I want to talk about performance. Yes, there's fruit that comes from our lives. Yes, there's fruit that comes from our effort as we live. But pruning, pruning means that maybe there's a season where that fruit isn't harvested. We could be fruitful, but not yet because a better season is coming. I want us to understand this as we talk about performance, as we talk about good deeds, as we talk about what we can do, what we have the abilities to do. You see, we tend to think about fixing our own behaviors in ways that's void of God, but we also sometimes talk about doing the right thing sometimes or the fruitful thing in a way that is without pressing into God. So I want to ask you, what does God desire in this season? Sometimes even our good de- deeds and good things can be done in a way that's out of step with the will and the plan of God in our lives. Think about this. Let me ask you, as you're planning your goals and your resolutions for this next year, how much are we seeking God and relying on God? Is it by his will and his power that we're seeking new things in our lives? I love the story of Life Church. I love the story of the building that we're currently in as we're filming, but also where we meet Sunday mornings. You see, it was open. Life Church could have got it earlier than it did. And I love Derek's prayerful posture, which was an example and a teaching moment, I believe, for an entire church, that it will be available if and when that's what God wants. It could have seemed right to just take the building. But was that in God's plan, his power, and his timing? So we have moments of fruitfulness, but in this pruning, we also see that we have moments of rest. Moments where certain fruit is held off so it's more fruitful. I want to ask you this. How is your rest? We talk a lot about work ethic. Do we talk enough about rest ethic? It's, it's a thing of God. It's, it's a holy act of God. Rest actually teaches us that we are not God. It teaches us that we're not alone. God's world is moving forward in his will and his plan and we just participate in it. And so what rest does is rest puts it in its rightful place. What rest does is it gives us a season or a day where we hold off and then God gives us the green light to be healthily more fruitful. Just like knowing that even though we mess up, God's grace will take care of us. I want to tell you what rest does is it says the pressure is on him. Rest and Sabbath are actually a gospel practice because it says God doesn't need me 
God doesn't need me to fix the world prob- world's problems. The good news is that he does it and he invites me to healthily participate. And do you know what else it does? It does something in us. We're not just making a statement when we rest, but it's actually a habit that shapes us. It's a holy habit that shapes us, saying that we don't have to perform in unhealthy ways. It's a purposeful rhythm that actually puts performance and what it is into a healthy place in our lives. Psalm 23, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's the Lord that leads him. He says, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Think about that. He leads me beside the waters. What? He makes me lie down in green pastures. We can either lie down or he's gonna make us lie down. He knows what we need. I used to work with horses and part of my role was I'd run stables and trail rides at campgrounds in the summers. And I remember one day, our, we had a horse, is a Appaloosa, very large horse, 15, 16 hands, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, Name Marble. Marble, we come back after lunch break and Marble is on the ground laying down in front of the alfalfa. Marble got into the alfalfa. Now, if you know anything about alfalfa, if you're not walking or running the horse, alfalfa is not good. And as a matter of fact, too much alfalfa is not good. What it does is it actually shuts down the digestive system because of how intense and rich it is. And so while we were at lunch, Marble got off of the hitching post and walked over to the alfalfa, broke down the cables in the alfalfa and was just eating for who knows how long and was on the ground just laying. And we knew that the only hope that Marble had was if we could get Marble up walking around. But Marble, because of the pain, just wanted to lay down. And so what we did was we hooked the lead rope up to Marble and two of us pulled and pulled and pulled and we couldn't get Marble up. So after thinking about it, we hooked marble up to the truck. And as we slowly put gas down and moved the truck forward, we saw behind us marble get up by the pressure and begin to slowly walk in pain. And we walked marble around the campground on the roads for about 40 minutes until we realized at that point, the best thing we could do is to give marble rest. But we didn't want to give marble rest up in the dust and the heat. We had down by a stream that came down by the lakes, this green pasture that we saw. And we pulled our truck over there and we led Marble down to the green pasture. And we knew that the best hope that Marble had was to lay in the green pasture. See, we knew what Marble needed and most likely needed for a restored soul. And we led Marble there, even though Marble, by the pain, by whatever was happening in Marble's life, would have tried to do something else. We knew what was needed for a hope and a restoration for that moment with Marble. And the next day, we rolled in the campground. There, Marble was up running around. See, this is a reliance on God to be in control. Again, it is walking with God, not walking without him trying to make stuff happen. Let's go back to chapter 15 of John. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Think about that apart from me. Think about how we try and live in ways, even as Christians. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. If you remain in my love, now, now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, there's the commands again. If you remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And then the next chapter, John has a conversation again around the Holy Spirit, promising this helper, this advocate that he will send. So think about this. 14, we talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit, but then there's this call to obey commands. Then 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then there's a call to obey commands, and then it's sandwiched with the Holy Spirit. We could think that it's about obeying commands. That's what it is about and totally miss remaining in Christ and the helper and the Holy Spirit. One thing to note here, going back to the idea of these commands, is that what John actually does here is he specifically talks about love as the commands. You see this here in 15, but you see him actually define it in John 13. If you go back to John 13, 34, he says this. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And as we see from Paul, love is a fruit that is Evidence that the Holy Spirit is helping and active in your life. We're going to talk more about that next week. The reality is we don't know what true love is until we know Jesus and remain in him. Apart from him, he says, we can do nothing. So here's here's my point. The Christian life is not about modifying our behaviors or performing even in ways in our own strength. It is about remaining first and foremost with Christ. You may hear me say this and you may cringe. You may think, are you saying that lifestyle of pursuing holiness isn't what we need to pursue? I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is that we are called to remain in Christ, to walk with Christ. And what he does is he then leads us into deeper responses of love for God and for one another. And this is scary. It's actually scary to realize that we don't have to white knuckle to try and fix things, to be stressed all the time in ways that our brain kicks in our amygdala and we're always just living out of fight and flight because we're just so worried. He's at a distance watching us. We don't have to live like that anymore. It is so freeing. The lead singer of U2, Bono, says this. He talks about how an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, what you do comes back to you is kind of the way it seems like the world thinks and how we think and how other religions think. And he says this, he says, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sin upon the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. 
See, all the systems of other religions and even the way we tend to function in a high-performance world, it's like we have to perform for approval. And especially within religion, it's this idea of performing and worshiping for the approval of a deity. But in Christianity, the reality is, is at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. The debt's been canceled. And what the cross does is then, when we see Jesus there, it changes our mind from this idea of this distant God that's just frustrated with us to a God who took on flesh like I talked about last week and gave himself in self-sacrificial love and radical forgiveness. He loves us and he wants relationship with us. This grace that he offers covers all of our failures, past, present, and future when we are found in him and his righteousness. And it's working in our lives. I want to say this. It's working in our lives despite our own fallible efforts. There's nothing wrong with efforts. But the reality is, is in my best days and when my efforts seem to be at my best, I still need the grace of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 says that it is because of Christ It is because of Christ that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become the wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Before we close, I want to read to you something that my friend Tim wrote. Let this speak over you today. He says this, The gospel is not an invitation to performance. The gospel is an invitation to relationship. It's not a performance for Jesus. It's a relational dependence on Jesus. It's not about seeking perfection. It's about seeking intimacy with Christ and resting in his perfection. It's not a sporting event where Jesus sits in the stands and watches you perform. It's a relationship where Jesus walks beside you He carries you and he feeds you. It's not a fixation on our sin. It's a fixation on Jesus. The fruit of the gospel transform is not duty-oriented works. The fruit of the gospel transform life is self-sacrificial love. Jesus is not the power to perform better. Jesus is the food that nourishes our soul and nourishes it to love. Repentance is not just about turning away from sin. Repentance is about turning to Jesus. The result of repentance is not improved religious behavior. The result of repentance is a new affection for Jesus that expresses itself in love. That comes from John, right? Our witness to the world is not focused on the goodness of our performance. I've heard that taught before. Our witness to the world is focused on the love of Jesus despite our bad performance. Holiness is not putting our moral behavior on display for others to see. Holiness is embracing the set-apart unity in Christ and fully enjoin him as our greatest treasure. As we close, let this question and this statement from Jesus 
encourage you today. This is from Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a paraphrase of Matthew, 7, uh, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It says this, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythm of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray today that it prompts us not to move forward in a performance-based or religious-based mentality, but to move forward deeper into relationship with you. You're not on the sidelines looking at us with disgust. You, as we learned last week, you came and you dwelt among us and you revealed love and you revealed forgiveness to us. So may we press into you. May we have evidence in our lives, no matter what our struggles are, of the hope that we have, God, that you are at work in your timing and in your way. May we rest in that, and then may we live out of that reality, not just for you, but with you. And I pray this in your name.